Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. By Richard P. Feynman. Continued. Cassette 6, Side 2. The 7% Solution The problem was to find the right laws of beta decay. There appeared to be two particles which were called a tau and a theta. They seemed to have almost exactly the same mass, but one disintegrated into two pions and the other into three pions. Not only did they seem to have the same mass, but they also had the same lifetime, which is a funny coincidence. So everybody was concerned about this. At a meeting I went to, it was reported that when these two particles were produced in a cyclotron at different angles and different energies, they were always produced in the same proportions. So many taus compared to so many thetas. Now, one possibility, of course, was that it was the same principle, which sometimes decayed into two pions, and sometimes into three pions. But nobody would allow that, because there is a law called the parity rule, which is based on the assumption that all the laws of physics are mirror image symmetrical, and says that the thing that can go into two pions can also go into three pions. At that particular time, I was not really quite up to things. I was always a little behind. Everybody seemed to be smart, and I didn't feel I was keeping up. Anyway, I was sharing a room with a guy named Martin Block, an experimenter, and one evening he said to me, Why are you guys so insistent on this parity rule? Maybe the tau and theta are the same particle. What would be the consequences if the parity rule were wrong? I thought a minute and said, It would mean that nature's laws are different for the right hand and the left hand, that there's a way to define the right hand by physical phenomena. I don't know that that's so terrible, though there must be some bad consequences of that, but I don't know. Why don't you ask the experts tomorrow? He said, No, they won't listen to me. You ask. So the next day at the meeting, when we were discussing the tau-theta puzzle, Oppenheimer said, We need to hear some new, wilder ideas about this problem. So I got up and said, I'm asking this question for Martin Block. What would be the consequences if the parity rule was wrong? Murray Gelman often teased me about this, saying I didn't have the nerve to ask the question for myself. But that's not the reason. I thought it might very well be an important idea. Lee, of Lee and Yang, answered something complicated, and as usual I didn't understand very well. At the end of the meeting, Block asked me what he had said, and I said I didn't know. But as far as I could tell, it was still open. There was still a possibility. I didn't think it was likely, but I thought it was possible. Norm Ramsey asked me if I thought he should do an experiment looking for parity law violation, and I replied, The best way to explain it is, I'll bet you only fifty to one you don't find anything. He said, That's good enough for me, but he never got to do the experiment. Anyway, the discovery of parity law violation was made experimentally by Wu, and this opened up a whole bunch of new possibilities for beta decay theory. It also unleashed a whole host of experiments immediately after that. Some showed electrons coming out of the nuclei spun to the left, and some to the right, and there were all kinds of experiments, all kinds of interesting discoveries about parity. But the data were so confusing that nobody could put things together. At one point, there was a meeting in Rochester, the yearly Rochester Conference. I was still always behind, and Lee was giving his paper on the violation of parity. He and Yang had come to the conclusion that parity was violated, 
and now he was giving the theory for it. During the conference, I was staying with my sister in Syracuse. I brought the paper home and said to her, I can't understand these things that Lee and Yang are saying. It's all so complicated. No, she said. What you mean is not that you can't understand it, but that you didn't invent it. You didn't figure it out your own way, from hearing the clue. What you should do is imagine you're a student again, and take this paper upstairs, read every line of it, and check the equations. Then you'll understand it very easily. I took her advice and checked through the whole thing, and found it to be very obvious and simple. I had been afraid to read it, thinking it was too difficult. It reminded me of something I had done a long time ago with left and right unsymmetrical equations. Now it became kind of clear, when I looked at Lee's formulas, that the solution to it all was much simpler. Everything comes out coupled to the left. For the electron and the muon, my predictions were the same as Lee's, except I changed some signs around. I didn't realize it at the time, but Lee had taken only the simplest example of muon coupling, and hadn't proved that all muons would be full to the right, whereas according to my theory, all muons would have to be full automatically. Therefore, I had, in fact, a prediction on top of what he had. I had different signs, but I didn't realize that I also had this quantity right. I predicted a few things that nobody had experiments for yet, but when it came to the neutron and proton, I couldn't make it fit well with what was then known about neutron and proton coupling. It was kind of messy. The next day, when I went back to the meeting, a very kind man named Ken Case, who was going to give a paper on something, gave me five minutes of his allotted time to present my idea. I said I was convinced that everything was coupled to the left, and that the signs for the electron and muon are reversed, but I was struggling with the neutron. Later, the experimenters asked me some questions about my predictions, and then I went to Brazil for the summer. When I came back to the United States, I wanted to know what the situation was with beta decay. I went to Professor Wu's laboratory at Columbia, and she wasn't there. But another lady was there who showed me all kinds of data, all kinds of chaotic numbers that didn't fit with anything. The electrons, which in my model would have all come out spinning to the left in the beta decay, came out on the right in some cases. Nothing fit anything. When I got back to Caltech, I asked some of the experimenters what the situation was with beta decay. I remember three guys, Hans Jensen, Aldrich Wapstra, and Felix Bohm sitting me down on a little stool and starting to tell me all these facts, experimental results from other parts of the country, and their own experimental results. Since I knew those guys and how careful they were, I paid more attention to their results than to the others. Their results alone were not so inconsistent. It was all the others plus theirs. Finally, they got all this stuff into me, and they say, the situation is so mixed up that even some of the things they've established for years are being questioned, such as the beta decay of the neutron is S and T. It's so messed up. Murray says it might even be V and A. I jump up from the stool and say, Then I understand everything. I thought I was joking. But the thing that I had trouble with at the Rochester meeting, the neutron and proton disintegration, everything fit but that. And if it was V and A instead of S and T, that would fit too. Therefore, I had the whole theory. That night I calculated all kinds of things with this theory. The first thing I calculated was the rate of disintegration in the mu and the neutron. 
They should be connected together, if this theory was right, by a certain relationship, and it was right to 9%. That's pretty close, 9%. It should have been more perfect than that, but it was close enough. I went on and checked some other things which fit, and new things fit, new things fit, and I was very excited. It was the first time and the only time in my career that I knew a law of nature that nobody else knew. Of course, it wasn't true, but finding later that at least Murray Gelman and also Sudarshan and Marshak had worked out the same theory didn't spoil my fun. The other things I had done before were to take somebody else's theory and improve the method of calculating, or take an equation, such as the Schrodinger equation, to explain a phenomenon such as helium. We know the equation, and we know the phenomenon, but how does it work? I thought about Dirac, who had his equation for a while a new equation which told how an electron behaved. And I had this new equation for beta decay, which wasn't as vital as the Dirac equation, but it was good. It's the only time I ever discovered a new law. I called up my sister in New York to thank her for getting me to sit down and work through that paper by Lian Yang at the Rochester conference. After feeling uncomfortable and behind, now I was in. I had made a discovery, just from what she suggested. I was able to enter physics again, so to speak, and I wanted to thank her for that. I told her that everything fit, except for the 9%. I was very excited, and kept on calculating, and things that fit kept on tumbling out. They fit automatically without a strain. I had begun to forget about the 9% by now, because everything else was coming out right. I worked very hard into the night, sitting at a small table in the kitchen next to a window. It was getting later and later. About two or three a.m. I'm working hard, getting all these calculations packed solid with things that fit, and I'm thinking and concentrating, and it's dark and it's quiet, when suddenly there's a tack, 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 loud on the window. I look, and there's this white face right at the window only inches away, and I scream with shock and surprise. It was a lady I knew who was angry at me because I had come back from vacation and didn't immediately call her up to tell her I was back. I let her in and tried to explain that I was just now very busy, that I had just discovered something, and it was very important. I said, please go out and let me finish it. She said, no, I don't want to bother you. I'll just sit here in the living room. I said, well, all right, but it's very difficult. She didn't exactly sit in the living room. The best way to say it is she sort of squatted in a corner, holding her hands together, not wanting to bother me. Of course, her purpose was to bother the hell out of me, and she succeeded. I couldn't ignore her. I got very angry and upset, and I couldn't stand it. I had to do this calculating. I was making a big discovery and was terribly excited, and somehow it was more important to me than this lady, at least at that moment. I don't remember how I finally got her out of there but it was very difficult. After working some more, it got to be very late at night, and I was hungry. I walked up the main street to a little restaurant five or ten blocks away, as I had often done before, late at night. On earlier occasions, I was often stopped by the police, because I would be walking along, thinking, and then I'd stop. Sometimes an idea comes that's difficult enough that you can't keep walking. You have to make sure of something. So I'd stop, and sometimes I'd hold my hands out in the air, saying to myself, The distance between these is that way, and then this would turn over this way. I'd be moving my hands, standing in the street, when the police would come. What is your name? 
Where do you live? What are you doing? Oh, I, I was thinking. I'm sorry. I live here and go often to the restaurant. After a bit, they knew who it was, and they didn't stop me anymore. So I went to the restaurant, and while I'm eating, I'm so excited that I tell a lady that I just made a discovery. She starts in. She's the wife of a fireman or forester or something. She's very lonely, all this stuff that I'm not interested in. So that happens. The next morning, when I got to work, I went to Wapstra, Bohm, and Jensen and told them, I got it all worked out. Everything fits. Christie, who was there too, said, What beta decay constant did you use? The one from so-and-so's book. But that's been found out to be wrong. Recent measurements have shown it's off by 7%. Then I remember the 9%. It was like a prediction for me. I went home and got this theory that says the neutron decay should be off by 9%, and they tell me the next morning that, as a matter of fact, it's 7% changed. But is it changed from 9 to 16, which is bad, or from 9 to 2, which is good? Just then my sister calls from New York. How about the 9%? What's happened? I've just discovered that there's new data, 7%. Which way? I'm trying to find out. I'll call you back. I was so excited that I couldn't think. It's like when you're rushing for an airplane, and you don't know whether you're late or not, and you just can't make it when somebody says, It's daylight savings time. Yes, but which way? You can't think in the excitement. So Christy went into one room, and I went into another room each of us to be quiet, so we could think it through. This moves this way, and that moves that way. It wasn't very difficult, really. It's just exciting. Christy came out, and I came out, and we both agreed. It's two percent, which is well within experimental error. After all, if they just changed the constant by seven percent, the two percent could have been an error. I called my sister back. Two percent. The theory was right. Actually, it was wrong. It was off, really, by one percent, for a reason we hadn't appreciated, which was only understood later by Nicola Cabibo. So that two percent was not all experimental. Murray Gelman and I compared and combined our ideas, and wrote a paper on the theory. The theory was rather neat. It was relatively simple, and it fit a lot of stuff. But as I told you, there was an awful lot of chaotic data. And in some cases, we even went so far as to state that the experiments were in error. A good example of this was an experiment by Valentine Telegdi, in which he measured the number of electrons that go out in each direction when a neutron disintegrates. Our theory had predicted that the number should be the same in all directions, whereas Telegdi found that 11% more came out in one direction than the others. Telegdi was an excellent experimenter, and very careful. And once, when he was giving a talk somewhere, he referred to our theory and said, The trouble with theorists is, they never pay attention to the experiments. Telegdi also sent us a letter, which wasn't exactly scathing, but nevertheless showed he was convinced that our theory was wrong. At the end, he wrote, The F.G. Feynman-Gelman theory of beta decay is no F.G. Murray says, what should we do about this? You know, Telegdi's pretty good. I say, we just wait. Two days later, there's another letter from Telegdi. He's a complete convert. He found out from our theory 
that he had disregarded the possibility that the proton recoiling from the neutron is not the same in all directions. He had assumed it was the same. By putting in corrections that our theory predicted instead of the ones he had been using, the results straightened out and were in complete agreement. I knew that Telegdi was excellent, and it would be hard to go upstream against him, but I was convinced by that time that something must be wrong with his experiment, and that he would find it. He's much better at finding it than we would be. That's why I said we shouldn't try to figure it out, but just wait. I went to Professor Bakker and told him about our success, and he said, Yes, you come out and say that the neutron-proton coupling is V instead of T. Everybody used to think it was T. Where is the fundamental experiment that says it's T? Why don't you look at the early experiments and find out what was wrong with them? I went out and found the original article on the experiment that said the neutron-proton coupling is T, and I was shocked by something. I remembered reading that article once before, back in the days when I read every article in the physical review. It was small enough. And I remembered, when I saw this article again, looking at that curve and thinking, that doesn't prove anything. You see, it depended on one or two points at the very edge of the range of the data. And there's a principle that a point on the edge of the range of the data, the last point, isn't very good, because if it was, they'd have another point further along. And I had realized that the whole idea that neutron-proton coupling is T was based on that last point, which wasn't very good, and therefore it's not proved. I remember noticing that. And when I became interested in beta decay directly, I read all these reports by the beta decay experts which said it's T. I never looked at the original data. I only read those reports, like a dope. Had I been a good physicist, when I thought of the original idea back at the Rochester conference, I would have immediately looked up, how strong do we know it's T? That would have been the sensible thing to do. I would have recognized right away that I had already noticed it wasn't satisfactorily proved. Since then, I never pay any attention to anything by experts. I calculate everything myself. When people said the quark theory was pretty good, I got two PhDs, Finn Ravendahl and Mark Kisslinger, to go through the whole works with me, just so I could check that the thing was really giving results that fit fairly well, and that it was a significantly good theory. I'll never make that mistake again, reading the experts' opinions. Of course, you only live one life, and you make all your mistakes, and learn what not to do. And that's the end of you. Thirteen Times One time a science teacher from the local city college came around and asked me if I'd give a talk there. He offered me fifty dollars, but I told him I wasn't worried about the money. That's the city college, right? Yes. I thought about how much paperwork I usually had to get involved with when I deal with the government, so I laughed and said, I'll be glad to give the talk. There's only one condition on the whole thing. I pulled a number out of a hat and continued, that I don't have to sign my name more than thirteen times, and that includes the check. The guy laughs, too. Thirteen times! No problem! So then it starts. First I have to sign something that says I'm loyal to the government, or else I can't talk in the city college. And I have to sign it double, okay? Then I have to sign some kind of release to the city. I can't remember what. Pretty soon the numbers are beginning to climb up. 
I have to sign that I was suitably employed as a professor, to ensure, of course, since it's a city thing, that no jerk at the other end was hiring his wife or a friend to come and not even give the lecture. There were all kinds of things to ensure, and the signatures kept mounting. Well, the guy who started out laughing got pretty nervous, but we just made it. I signed exactly twelve times. There was one more left for the check, so I went ahead and gave the talk. A few days later, the guy came around to give me the check, and he was really sweating. He couldn't give me the money unless I signed a form saying I really gave the talk. I said, if I sign the form, I can't sign the check. But you were there. You heard the talk. Why don't you sign it? Look, he said, isn't this whole thing rather silly? No. It was an arrangement we made in the beginning. We didn't think it was really going to get to 13, but we agreed on it, and I think we should stick to it, to the end. He said, I've been working very hard, calling all around. I've been trying everything, and they tell me it's impossible. You simply can't get your money unless you sign the form. It's okay, I said. I've only signed twelve times, and I gave the talk. I don't need the money. But I hate to do this to you. It's all right. We made a deal. Don't worry. The next day he called me up. They can't not give you the money. They've already earmarked the money, and they've got it set aside, so they have to give it to you. Okay, they have to give me the money. Let them give me the money. But you have to sign the form. I won't sign the form. They were stuck. There was no miscellaneous pot which was for money that this man deserves but won't sign for. Finally, it got straightened out. It took a long time, and it was very complicated. But I used the thirteenth signature to cash my check. Sounds Greek to me. I don't know why, but I'm always very careless when I go on a trip, about the address or telephone number or anything of the people who invited me. I figure I'll be met, or somebody else will know where we're going. It'll get straightened out somehow. One time, in 1957, I went to a gravity conference at the University of North Carolina. I was supposed to be an expert in a different field who looks at gravity. I landed at the airport a day late for the conference. I couldn't make it the first day. And I went out to where the taxis were. I said to the dispatcher, I'd like to go to the University of North Carolina. Which do you mean? He said, the State University of North Carolina at Raleigh or the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill? Needless to say, I hadn't the slightest idea. Where are they, I asked, figuring that one must be near the other. One's north of here, and the other is south of here, about the same distance. I had nothing with me that showed which one it was, and there was nobody else going to the conference a day late like I was. That gave me an idea. Listen, I said to the dispatcher, the main meeting began yesterday, so there were a whole lot of guys going to the meeting who must have come through here yesterday. Let me describe them to you. They would have their heads kind of in the air, and they would be talking to each other, not paying attention where they were going, saying things to each other like, His face lit up. Ah, yes, he said. You mean Chapel Hill. He called the next taxi, waiting in line. Take this man to University of Chapel Hill. Thank you, I said, and I went to the conference.
but is it art? Once I was at a party playing bongos, and I got going pretty well. One of the guys was particularly inspired by the drumming. He went into the bathroom, took off his shirt, smeared shaving cream and funny designs all over his chest, and came out dancing wildly with cherries hanging from his ears. Naturally, this crazy nut and I became good friends right away. His name is Gerard Zorthian. He's an artist. We often had long discussions about art and science. I'd say things like, Artists are lost. They don't have any subject. They used to have the religious subjects, but they lost their religion, and now they haven't got anything. They don't understand the technical world they live in. They don't know anything about the beauty of the real world, the scientific world, so they don't have anything in their hearts to paint. Jerry would reply that artists don't need to have a physical subject. There are many emotions that can be expressed through art. Besides, art can be abstract. Furthermore, Scientists destroy the beauty of nature when they pick it apart and turn it into mathematical equations. One time I was over at Jerry's for his birthday, and one of these dopey arguments lasted until 3 a.m. The next morning I called him up. Listen, Jerry, I said, the reason we have these arguments that never get anywhere is that you don't know a damn thing about science, and I don't know a damn thing about art. So on alternate Sundays I'll give you a lesson in science and you give me a lesson in art. Okay, he said. I'll teach you how to draw. That will be impossible, I said, because when I was in high school, the only thing I could draw was pyramids on deserts, consisting mainly of straight lines, and from time to time I would attempt a palm tree and put in a sun. I had absolutely no talent. I sat next to a guy who was equally adept. When he was permitted to draw anything, it consisted of two flat elliptical blobs like tires stacked on one another, with a stalk coming out of the top, culminating in a green triangle. It was supposed to be a tree. So I bet Jerry that he wouldn't be able to teach me to draw. Of course you'll have to work, he said. I promised to work, but still bet that he couldn't teach me to draw. I wanted very much to learn to draw, for a reason that I kept to myself. I wanted to convey an emotion I have about the beauty of the world. It's difficult to describe because it's an emotion. It's analogous to the feeling one has in religion that has to do with a god that controls everything in the whole universe. There's a generality aspect that you feel when you think about how things that appear so different and behave so differently are all run behind the scenes by the same organization, the same physical laws. It's an appreciation of the mathematical beauty of nature, of how she works inside, a realization that the phenomena we see result from the complexity of the inner workings between atoms, a feeling of how dramatic and wonderful it is. It's a feeling of awe, of scientific awe, which I felt could be communicated through a drawing to someone who had also had this emotion. It could remind him, for a moment, of this feeling about the glories of the universe. Jerry turned out to be a very good teacher. He told me first to go home and draw anything. So I tried to draw a shoe. Then I tried to draw a flower in a pot. It was a mess. The next time we met I showed him my attempts. Oh, look, he said. You see? I rounded him back here. The line of the flower pot doesn't touch the leaf. I had meant the line to come up to the leaf. That's very good. It's a way of showing depth. That's very clever of you. And the fact that you don't make all the lines the same thickness, which I didn't mean to do, is good. 
A drawing with all the lines the same thickness is dull. It continued like that. Everything that I thought was a mistake, he used to teach me something in a positive way. He never said it was wrong. He never put me down. So I kept on trying, and I gradually got a little bit better, but I was never satisfied. To get more practice, I also signed up for a correspondence school course with international correspondence schools, and I must say they were very good. They started me off drawing pyramids and cylinders, shading them and so on. We covered many areas—drawing, pastels, watercolors, and paints. Near the end I petered out. I made an oil painting for them, but I never sent it in. They kept sending me letters urging me to continue. They were very good. I practiced drawing all the time and became very interested in it. If I was at a meeting that wasn't getting anywhere, like the one where Carl Rogers came to Caltech to discuss with us whether Caltech should develop a psychology department, I would draw the other people. I had a little pad of paper I kept with me, and I practiced drawing wherever I went. So as Jerry taught me, I worked very hard. Jerry, on the other hand, didn't learn much physics. His mind wandered too easily. I tried to teach him something about electricity and magnetism. But as soon as I mentioned electricity, he'd tell me something about a motor he had that didn't work, and how might he fix it. When I tried to show him how an electromagnet works by making a little coil of wire and hanging a nail on a piece of string, I put the voltage on. The nail swung into the coil, and Jerry said, "Ooh, it's just like fucking." So that was the end of that. So now we have a new argument: whether he's a better teacher than I was. Or I'm a better student than he was. I gave up the idea of trying to get an artist to appreciate the feeling I had about nature, so he could portray it. I would now have to double my efforts in learning to draw, so I could do it myself. It was a very ambitious undertaking, and I kept the idea entirely to myself, because the odds were I would never be able to do it. Early on in the process of learning to draw, some lady I knew saw my attempts and said. You should go down to the Pasadena Art Museum. They have drawing classes there with models, nude models. No, I said, I can't draw well enough. I'd feel very embarrassed. You're good enough. You should see some of the others. So I worked up enough courage to go down there. In the first lesson, they told us about newsprint, very large sheets of low-grade paper, the size of a newspaper, and the various kinds of pencils and charcoal to get. For the second class, a model came, and she started off with a ten-minute pose. I started to draw the model, and by the time I'd done one leg, the ten minutes were up. I looked around and saw that everyone else had already drawn a complete picture with shading in the back. The whole business. I realized I was way out of my depth, but finally, at the end, the model was going to pose for thirty minutes. I worked very hard, and with great effort. I was able to draw her whole outline. This time there was half a hope, so this time I didn't cover up my drawing as I had done with all the previous ones. We went around to look at what the others had done, and I discovered what they could really do. They draw the model with details and shadows, the pocketbook that's on the bench she's sitting on, the platform, everything. They've all gone zip, 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 zip with the charcoal all over. And I figure it's hopeless, utterly hopeless. I go back to cover up my drawing, which consists of a few lines crowded into the upper left-hand corner of the newsprint. I had until then only been drawing on eight and a half by eleven paper, 
but some others in the class are standing nearby. Oh, look at this one, one of them says. Every line counts. I didn't know what that meant exactly, but I felt encouraged enough to come to the next class. In the meantime, Jerry kept telling me that drawings that are too full aren't any good. His job was to teach me not to worry about the others, so he'd tell me they weren't so hot. I noticed that the teacher didn't tell people much. The only thing he told me was my picture was too small on the page. Instead, he tried to inspire us to experiment with new approaches. I thought of how we teach physics. We have so many techniques, so many mathematical methods, that we never stop telling the students how to do things. On the other hand, the drawing teacher is afraid to tell you anything. If your lines are very heavy, the teacher can't say, your lines are too heavy, because some artist has figured out a way of making great pictures using heavy lines. The teacher doesn't want to push you in some particular direction. So the drawing teacher has this problem of communicating how to draw by osmosis and not by instruction, while the physics teacher has the problem of always teaching techniques rather than the spirit of how to go about solving physical problems. They were always telling me to loosen up, to become more relaxed about drawing. I figured that made no more sense than telling someone who's just learned to drive to loosen up at the wheel. It isn't going to work. Only after you know how to do it carefully can you begin to loosen up. So I resisted this perennial loosen-up stuff. One exercise they had invented for loosening us up was to draw without looking at the paper. Don't take your eyes off the model. Just look at her and make the lines on the paper without looking at what you're doing. One of the guys says, I can't help it. I have to cheat. I bet everybody's cheating. I'm not cheating, I say. Aw, oh, baloney, they say. I finished the exercise, and they come over to look at what I had drawn. They found that indeed I was not cheating. At the very beginning, my pencil point had busted, and there was nothing but impressions on the paper. When I finally got my pencil to work, I tried it again. I found that my drawing had a kind of strength, a funny, semi-Picasso-like strength, which appealed to me. The reason I felt good about that drawing was, I knew it was impossible to draw well that way, and therefore it didn't have to be good. And that's really what the loosening up was all about. I had thought that loosen up meant make sloppy drawings, but it meant to relax, and not to worry about how the drawing is going to come out. I made a lot of progress in the class, and I was feeling pretty good. Up until the last session, all the models we had were rather heavy and out of shape. They were rather interesting to draw. But in the last class, we had a model who was a nifty blonde, perfectly proportioned. It was then that I discovered that I still didn't know how to draw. I couldn't make anything come out that looked anything like this beautiful girl. With the other models... If you draw something a little too big or a bit too small, it doesn't make any difference because it's all out of shape anyway. But when you're trying to draw something that's so well put together, you can't fool yourself. It's got to be just right. During one of the breaks, I overheard a guy who could really draw asking this model whether she posed privately. She said yes. Good, but I don't have a studio yet, so I'll have to work that out first. I figured I could learn a lot from this guy, and I'd never get another chance to draw this nifty model unless I did something. Excuse me, I said to him. I have a room downstairs in my house that could be used as a studio. They both agreed. 
I took a few of the guy's drawings to my friend Jerry, but he was aghast. Those aren't so good, he said. He tried to explain why, but I never really understood. Until I began to learn to draw, I was never much interested in looking at art. I had very little appreciation for things artistic, and only very rarely, such as once when I was in a museum in Japan, I saw a painting done on brown paper of bamboo, and what was beautiful about it to me was that it was perfectly poised between being just some brush strokes and being bamboo. I could make it go back and forth. The summer after the drawing class, I was in Italy for a science conference, and I thought, I'd like to see the Sistine Chapel. I got there very early in the morning, bought my ticket before anybody else, and ran up the stairs as soon as the place opened. I therefore had the unusual pleasure of looking at the whole chapel for a moment, in silent awe, before anybody else came in. Soon the tourists came, and there were crowds of people milling around, talking different languages, pointing at this and that, and walking around, looking at the ceiling for a while. Then my eye came down a little bit, and I saw some big framed pictures, and I thought, Gee, I never knew about these. Unfortunately, I'd left my guidebook at the hotel, but I thought to myself, I know why these panels aren't famous. They aren't any good. But then I looked at another one, and I said, Wow, that's a good one. I looked at the others. That's good, too. So was that one. But that one's lousy. I had never heard of these panels, but I decided they were all good except for two. I went into a place called the Sala de Raphael, the Raphael Room, and I noticed the same phenomenon. I thought to myself, Raphael is irregular. He doesn't always succeed. Sometimes he's very good. Sometimes it's just junk. When I got back to my hotel, I looked at the guidebook. In the part about the Sistine Chapel, Below the paintings by Michelangelo, there are fourteen panels by Botticelli, Perugino, all these great artists, and two by so-and-so, which are of no significance. This was a terrific excitement to me, that I also could tell the difference between a beautiful work of art and one that's not, without being able to define it. As a scientist, you always think you know what you're doing, so you tend to distrust the artist who says, it's great, or it's no good, and then is not able to explain to you why, as Jerry did with those drawings I took him. But here I was, sunk. I could do it too. In the Raphael room, the secret turned out to be that only some of the paintings were made by the great master. The rest were made by students. I had liked the ones by Raphael. This was a big jab for my self-confidence in my ability to appreciate art. Anyway, the guy from the art class and the nifty model came over to my house a number of times, and I tried to draw her and learn from him. After many attempts, I finally drew what I felt was a really nice picture. It was a portrait of her head, and I got very excited about this first success. I had enough confidence to ask an old friend of mine named Steve Dimitriades if his beautiful wife would pose for me, and in return I would give him the portrait. He laughed. She wants to waste her time posing for you. It's all right with me. <laughs> worked very hard on her portrait, and when he saw it, he turned over to my side completely. It's just wonderful, he exclaimed. Can you get a photographer to make copies of it? I want to send one to my mother in Greece. His mother had never seen the girl he married. It was very exciting to me. 
to think that I had improved to the point where someone wanted one of my drawings. A similar thing happened at a small art exhibit that some guy at Caltech had arranged, where I contributed two drawings and a painting. He said, You ought to put a price on the drawings. I thought, That's silly. I'm not trying to sell them. It makes the exhibition more interesting. If you don't mind parting with them, just put a price on. After the show, the guy told me that a girl had bought one of my drawings and wanted to speak to me to find out more about it. The drawing was called The Magnetic Field of the Sun. For this particular drawing, I had borrowed one of those beautiful pictures of the solar prominences, taken at the Solar Laboratory in Colorado. Because I understood how the sun's magnetic field was holding up the flames and had, by that time, developed some technique for drawing magnetic field lines, it was similar to a girl's flowing hair, I wanted to draw something beautiful that no artist would think to draw. The rather complicated and twisting lines of the magnetic field, close together here and spreading out there. I explained all this to her and showed her the picture that gave me the idea. She told me this story. She and her husband had gone to the exhibit, and they both liked the drawing very much. Why don't we buy it? she suggested. Her husband was the kind of man who could never do anything right away. Let's think about it a while, he said. She realized his birthday was a few months ahead, so she went back the same day and bought it herself. That night when he came home from work he was depressed. She finally got it out of him. He thought it would be nice to buy her that picture, but when he went back to the exhibit, he was told that the picture had already been sold, so she had it to surprise him on his birthday. What I got out of that story was something still very new to me. I understood at last what art is really for, at least in certain respects. It gives somebody, individually, pleasure. You can make something that somebody likes so much that they're depressed or they're happy on account of that damn thing you made. In science, it's sort of general and large. You don't know the individuals who have appreciated it directly. I understood that to sell a drawing is not to make money, but to be sure that it's in the home of someone who really wants it, someone who would feel bad if they didn't have it. This was interesting. So I decided to sell my drawings. However, I didn't want people to buy my drawings because the professor of physics isn't supposed to be able to draw, isn't that wonderful? So I made up a false name. My friend Dudley Wright suggested O-Fay, which means it is done in French. I spelled it O-F-E-Y, which turned out to be a name the blacks used for Whitey. But after all, I was Whitey, so it was all right. One of my models wanted me to make a drawing for her, but she didn't have the money. Models don't have money. If they did, they wouldn't be modeling. She offered to pose three times free if I would give her a drawing. On the contrary, I said, I'll give you three drawings if you'll pose once for nothing. She put one of the drawings I gave her on the wall in her small room, and soon her boyfriend noticed it. He liked it so much that he wanted to commission a portrait of her. He would pay me sixty dollars. Money was getting pretty good now. Then she got the idea to be my agent. She could earn a little extra money by going around selling my drawings, saying, There's a new artist in Altadena. It was fun to be in a different world. She arranged to have some of my drawings put on display at Bullock's, Pasadena's most elegant department store. She and the lady from the art section picked out some drawings, drawings of plants that I had made early on, that I didn't like, and had them all framed. 
Then I got a signed document from Bullock's saying that they had such and such drawings on consignment. Of course, nobody bought any of them, but otherwise I was a big success. I had my drawings on sale at Bullock's. It was fun to have them there, just so I could say one day that I had reached that pinnacle of success in the art world. Most of my models I got through Jerry, but I also tried to get models on my own. Whenever I met a young woman who looked as if she would be interesting to draw, I would ask her to pose for me. It always ended up that I would draw her face, because I didn't know exactly how to bring up the subject of posing nude.